puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man But until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Oh, oh, it's magic, Ironside Chatters. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood, and given the sorry state of civilization, hair trigger attention span, screen addiction, a lack of authenticity, and a disparity of depth in nearly all forms of art, music, and film, it becomes a much-needed rebellious act to take the path less traveled and cultivate a practice of appreciation for deeper meaning exploration of the inner world, and bringing forth the truly inspired works of art the numb, depressed, and desperate masses don't even realize they need. It is a trope of troubled times that an aggressive authoritarian state will destroy great works and burn true art because their inspirational and emotional impact could be a threat to said system. But another path is to degrade the culture to such a degree that nothing worth burning even gets made anymore. Might we ourselves be circling around a reality of cheap plastic, mass production, endless scrolling, and a cultural ignorance so pervasive as to think AI is a sufficient replacement for the greater divine artistic gifts of man? Say it ain't so. Well, today's returning guest, Brian Cote-Noir, will not go quietly into that darkness as he has really dedicated his life to the mysteries, alchemy, art, film, and authoring books that guide the curious down a path of deeper meaning, spiritual growth, creativity, and a much-needed artistic revival. His books include Alchemy, the Poetry of Matter, Practical Alchemy, A Guide to the Great Work, Alchemical Meditations on the Quintessence of Wine, the Emerald Tablet, containing his translations of and commentary on the earliest Arabic and Latin versions of this seminal text, and his latest, On Alchemy, Essential Practices, and Making Art as Alchemy. He is also the author of the Hermetic and Alchemical Zine series. Kepri Press, which launched in 2014 with the publication of the Emerald Tablet, is the vehicle and portal for his alchemical work, his film work has been screened at the Museum of Modern Art, Sundance Film Festival, HBO, PBS, and other international venues as well. It's a pleasure to have him back, the art and alchemy infuser, deeper meaning seeker, and teacher of the great work. Brian, welcome back. Well, wow. <laughs> That's me? That's you. <laughs> Thank you. It's great being here. It was fun last time, too. So uh, looking forward to this. Heck yeah, man. Thanks for coming back. I know I laid it on a little thick there. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it is generally fair to say high art is in a pretty desperate state. And it seems to me like an observable symptom of a harder to diagnose social deficiency. What do you think? Am I being dramatic? A little, but that's okay. <laughs> Now's the time for drama. I mean, I don't know much about like the whole full art world market gallery, all these kinds of things. But what I do notice, and this comes out of 
the workshops I give, talks I give, things like this, is that the vast majority of people who show up to these talks aren't necessarily practicing alchemists, folks interested in their artists. And that was not surprising to me. I mean, I practice art, I do alchemy, things like this, so I understand the deeper connection there. But what I feel is that there is a thirst, there's a curiosity, and that there is a need from young artists to explore this material, to have access to this material. And where I see change happening and where the problem was and still is, is within essentially the academies, right? The art schools. This esoteric material, it's like, oh yeah, there's that, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, you know, and then there's art. But the thing is, is that, I mean, artists throughout time have always been part and parcel of the esoteric world and exploration. Pick any artist and go into their lives and you will see at one point, if not throughout, they've been interested in this material or exploring this material. So that's where I feel is missing our explorations of this within the universities, except it's starting to happen, right? There's a conference through NYU. Actually, I'm going to plug it. <laughs> it's, a, it's this October. It's called the Occult Humanities Conference. And it's exactly for that purpose of looking at the arts and looking at the esoteric, the occult influences upon artists and then vice versa. So the fact that this is a conference that has been going on now, it's like the third or fourth, but it's like every other year or something. It's been going on for like six, seven years. And there were more of them. I oftentimes get asked to speak to a class at a university, an art class about alchemy. So I'm seeing the changes. But for the most part, it's like as you see things, it's all about the market. And that's where the problems come. You have artists that, and I do not blame any artist for trying to make a living. All right. This is not some <laughs> highfalutin, no, well, you should not do that. You should do this. No, you do what you need to do to pay your rent. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then, you know, you work in the cracks if that's where you find yourself. If you find yourself in a really kind of heavy, this is not where I want to be. Well, you know, sometimes there are these little cracks within that where you can find this work to do. This is generally the opinion, my opinion on it, is that there are problems, but it comes from this very narrow view of funneling artists into the art market, letting them know what sells, how to promote it, how to do it. Yeah. Fair enough, you know, <laughs> but you're missing something. Right. That is fair enough. And historically, the market for my favorite things is often pretty small. So I think if you're in that category, then that's a good sign in my eyes. And I really enjoyed that last interview we did a couple of years ago and was pleased to see another alchemical text emerge with your name on it. And given the numerous books on various aspects of alchemy that you've put out in the past, what is unique about this latest one? Ah, very good. What I've done is try to condense down, removing very specific alchemical practice, but finding the core practice so that you can then take this work and apply it to your own artwork. Right. So let me unpack that a little bit, because there's a lot of assumed ideas there that I don't think are particularly articulated yet. Alchemy is an art. It has been called the art of arts because fundamental to this idea is that it is an overarching theory of creating, of creation. Right. This is what the Emerald Tablet is about. The Emerald Tablet describes how creation occurs. 
And the thing is, is that this creation that they're describing, the processes, are universal. So any one, if you read the Emerald Tablet, it goes, all things come from the one, right? And so mystics and we'll think of the one, right? Whether the divine deity or some point of unity or something like that. But actually, it's really speaking about any one, right? So even a little one like me, right, comes from the one. And so when you start to understand and look at the Emerald Tablet this way and alchemy this way, it's really about the individual's creation, right? And its impact and your interaction with the world. So the processes within alchemy, yeah, they are about perfecting matter, right? A lot of the practices are around that, the idea of transmutation into from lead into gold. But on a deeper level, it is actually about the transformation of oneself, of soul, however you wish to speak of it. Now, the practices involved in alchemy, such as, and I'm speaking of the inner practices that get engaged with the outer practices, such as visualizations, these types of things that you do to prepare as well as the work, work as well in an alchemical laboratory as they do in front of a canvas or a script or anything else you're creating, because you're creating something almost out of nothing, right? And this is you know, you're taking elements and you're putting them together, you're rearranging them, combining them, and you're coming up with something that has never existed before. You've taken shit and you've transformed it to art. And with some artists, that's literal, <laughs> right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. And that's where I found like when I would be giving talks on alchemy and the artists were all there, it was all kind of gravitating. Well, how not explicitly asked, how can I use my art practice as the alchemical practice? But that's what I was picking up as the subtext. So all the way through, as I was working on these other books and works, I do include the inner practices there, but it's more tied into actual alchemical practice. So what this book does, I give some very basic alchemical practices, literally, making very simple equipment. But this isn't so much to make alchemical products as it is a prop for meditations. So doing a circulation, you can actually see what is going on. And this is what I do in the book. I mean, it gets as simple as I talk about the circulation of elements, right? Which is a key aspect of alchemy, right? But then I give very, very simple demonstrations how you can see this yourself. Doesn't involve anything more than a boiling water in a plate with ice in it. Some of these things will remind you of very simple chemistry. And indeed it is. But what this provides is the framework to understand the alchemical processes and how it relates to the inner processes as you then attempt to apply it to your work, artwork, art practice. And so that's what I kind of lay out the theories very simply, the practices, alchemical, and then I get into, you know, how do you observe, you know, all these really basic things. So that if you are a practitioner of alchemy or anything else, even ritual, magic, or something, this will help you. No matter what you do, these practices will charge, engage, and energize whatever practice you're doing. And I say that not from hypothetical, perhaps, maybe. This is my work for over 50 years. And I'm writing from my own experience, as well as quotations from sources and things like this. So this is what's different about it. It's really aimed towards the artist, actually. Yeah, and I just I saw a lot of stuff in the book that I just thought could be good for anyone, universally good for Absolutely. developing oneself in a deeper way and 
the kind of things that used to be appreciated but aren't necessarily so much today. They're definitely not taught as commonly today. You have to kind of go searching for these sorts of things. But in terms of the elements, last time we talked about the system of the three principles, you know, one of the foundations of alchemy, salt body, mercury spirit, sulfur, soul. And this book talked about the two principles of hot, cold, and dry, wet. I don't think I've heard that broken down before in my conversations with people who engage with alchemy, but these two principles and how they interact give rise to the elements. Talk to people about this a little bit, because it is pretty interesting that so much can be broken down into just these two dichotomies. Yes, yes. And this is Aristotle. This goes back to early Greek philosophy. And the idea is, I think this is the human thing. We look at the world, we touch the world, and we go, well, what's underneath it? You know, what's building this? How does that happen? Right? You take a stick and you poke it, then you get an axe and you cut it in half. You know, and there's this constant opening of the world, right? To kind of see what it is. And so this is what the Greek philosophers were doing. Looking at the world, seeing that there were things going on. One, there's something that creates energy, right? They called fire, right? Something that gives structure and solidity, they called earth, right? Stuff that flows is malleable, water. And then stuff that has a quick flowing movement, air. But what's underneath that? So Aristotle has this idea that, well, actually there are two underlying principles, hot and cold, right? That one axis of opposites, hot, cold, and dry and wet. And then the interactions of those things is what gives rise to the elements. It's conceptually not that different from the way contemporary physics and science looks at the material world, that it's layered. Under each layer, there's another layer of either simplicity with other layers of complexity underneath it, and you just keep going down. So that's what's being shown here. Where this idea of transmutation starts to first show up is with this idea of the four elements, right? For instance, so you have hot, cold, dry, wet. And so if you have water, which is cold and wet, right? If you look in the book, there's a little diagram there with the cross, the hot, dry, right? And you see where the elements come about. So if you understand water to be cold and wet, by adding heat to it, it changes it into wet and hot or hot and wet, which is air, okay? So you've just transmuted one element into another according to the Greek philosophy. This is the basis of distillation. This is the basis of alchemy right here, right? Because if you add heat to water, turn it to air, when you remove that heat, it reduces it back to water again. If you divert that air to someplace else, right, through a tube and cool it, you've just moved water from one place to another. Now, liquids have a boiling point, as we all know. If you mix liquids, the liquid with the lowest boiling point when you heat it will come over first. So what you're doing is you're taking cold and wet. You may be taking several cold and wets that are mixed together, and you're adding a specific amount of heat for this one liquid so that it evaporates, turns to air. You draw it off, cool it, and it returns to the liquid again. So this is right here, the very, 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 very basis of alchemical work, right? Which is a separation and a purification of the elements. A diagram would help, 
<laughs> you know, and and it's in the book. So yes, um, yes. You know, here I am gesturing wildly. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Well, it is an interesting way to look at the world and the things that make it up at fundamental levels, and it's just one I hadn't really heard broken down before. And in terms of the things that are useful to people in their everyday life, culture today has so much external stimuli that the process of turning inward is becoming way more rare. You have to look in pretty obscure places to even find anyone talking about it. And a lot of people are completely ignorant of its value. What would you say is the value of making time and space to turn inward? Oh, my God. <laughs> life? <laughs> about life <laughs> you know? no i mean it's we inhale and we exhale i mean that's the only way i could really think about it you have a moment for the outstroke and you have the moment for the instroke if all you're doing are outstrokes if all you're doing is on send and you never have time for shutting down and turning inward you're not going to do anything this is actually one of the points about kind of like studying in the reading of the material is to internalize it, right? So that when you're away from the material, like you're in your laboratory or you're working on an art piece, right? You have the material so internalized, right? Because it's your idea, it's what you're doing. You can actually see in your own mind's eye what's happening. You step away from that studio, laboratory, you're riding the subway, you're riding the bus, you're driving to work, whatever, you have it in your head. And this is the place where the work goes. This is the place where this happens because it asks you to start to visualize, so asks you to work with your own mind interiorly. And there are practices, various forms of very simple meditation of following the breath, which I think almost everybody has heard of. So if you start to incorporate that, and I break it down in the book, step by step by step, and a lot of this will be familiar to people, right? Because there is. I agree with you that for the most part, folks aren't aware of this in the vast majority. I think folks more involved in the esoteric community are because they are looking for these things. So they may have taken a yoga class and done some breathing. They may have taken a mindfulness thing someplace dealing with what have you that allows them to understand how to visualize, how to meditate. But what's rare is, okay, now what? How do you integrate whatever you're doing there? I mean, yes, it does have great benefits to kind of like chill you out, keep you focused, not lose your center as you're dealing with all the bullshit in the world. But there's more to it. When you have this material in you, even though you're not thinking about it, even though you're distracted with other things, it's working. And let me give you an example of this, just to show you how our mind works when we don't think it is. When you go to sleep at night and you have to get up say eight o'clock in the morning and you set your alarm for eight o'clock how often do you wake up two to five minutes before the alarm goes off right, right? pretty often how do you do that good question it must be in the inner world it's in your mind something is keeping track of the hours either through your own acclimation to the sounds in the street that happen at seven thirty, the light changing whatever you wake up five minutes before, which means that when you went to sleep, you put in your mind, I need to get up at eight o'clock. And throughout that whole night, that thought, that imprint 
has been with you the whole entire night working in the background until the time comes for it to engage, right? So if you're doing that with like eight o'clock in the morning, then you start to think about, okay, what other shit am I carrying with me into the dream world, right? And so there are practices where you review your day backwards, right? And then you go, was that a good thing or a bad thing? And you go, that was a good thing. Okay, great. I like that. I'll do that again. Hooray me. Oh, that was pretty nasty what I said or did. I won't do that again. Better luck tomorrow kind of a thing. And then what ends up happening is you kind of clear the day. And then your mind is more free then for the deeper work of dreaming. And so this is one of the dream practices that come, which is to separate the day from the night by reviewing the day and getting rid of the shit. And acknowledging the good shit, that's also really important, right? Because you're not, we're mostly good folks. We just happen to curse the person ahead of us that's moving a little slow in the line sometimes, you know what I mean? And you kind of want to pull back on that. So this is what I'm saying. These are some of the practices when you read the book, you're going to go, oh yeah, I heard this in my yoga class. Or I had this mindfulness app that suggested these things to me. One of the problems I find with some of the applications, right, apps, iPhone kind of things where you'll do some inner work with, or even some esoteric work with, is okay for training, but it's a cheat. The idea is you need to bring the stuff inside you, not relying upon it. At some, you need an external prop to get started. I mean, that's what all the work is about. It's something to focus on. But if you're relying on Let's say there's this idea of planetary hours, right? In other words, each day of the week is ruled by a planet. Each hour of those days are ruled by particular planets and it cycles through. So what is the planetary hour of now? Right? We could look it up. And there, I was talking about this and was like, oh, there's an app for that. And it's like, <laughs> well, you're kind of missing the point then because it's about you having this inside you, you all of a sudden being aware of this and then sensitizing yourself to it, making it real. It's not necessarily really real. It's a symbol set that you are engaging and enlivening. And so that's one of the, one of the things of really bringing this material in working with it. And then when you're away from it, try to see it, try to work on it in your head. Any artist does this. I mean, you can't help it. It's like anytime we have a problem, we're away from the problem, your mind is spinning with it. But what the alchemical practices and the meditative practices do is start to give you a structure and a way to kind of focus and keep the mind on track without getting pulled away from things so you keep spinning deeper into nonsense and away from the thing you're wanting to focus on. Yeah, this is really interesting. The alarm phenomenon that you laid out is an example, you could say, of dream incubation. Yes, actually, a very slight form of it. Fair. Yeah, this is the thing like we know that that occasionally happens. And then we've heard other stories of scientists working on a problem and then they go to sleep and the answer comes in a dream. And I've definitely heard stories that fit that mold for a solution or an invention coming to someone in a dream. But it's usually presented as a random thing. I hadn't thought much about cultivating that or developing it into a reliable, repeatable practice that would be useful on an ongoing basis. Oh, yeah. And that's obviously something that your book is about. Talk to us about how one would do that personally or what the benefits would be of 
exercising the dream body, as you put it? Aside from just great fun, (laughs) (laughs) right? I mean, it's like, what am I going to do tonight? But it's not even so much about the lucid dreaming. I mean, that we can get to. This is just about like ordinary dream. And then the cultivation of what's known as, the, as you pointed out, uh, dream incubation. This goes back to ancient Greece again. The practice there was medicinal. If you had an illness or a problem, you'd go to the temple of a particular god that's related to this. You would spend the night there and sleep. And as you went to sleep, you'd pose the question to the deity, right? Or your problem to the deity. You would have a dream in which the deity either appeared and revealed something to you or the priests in the temple would interpret your dream, right? And give you what you need to do to solve the problem. What people did was then to write down their solutions to their illness on the temple walls. And so Hippocrates, one of the earliest writers on medicine, went around the temples and collected these and then started his body of medicine, like what would work. So it come, out of our early medicine comes out of dream work, which I find really, and a very astute observing mind, right? So the two together, and that's the key right there. What you do, and this is an alchemical practice, and you could read this exact thing in like around 400th century, right? In some Greco-Egyptian text of Zosimos to his partner. And he's talking about this experiment he's working on, and he describes, and this is the practice right here. He's describing what the problem is. I am in the lab. This is going on. This is going on. This is going on. This is going on. Hmm. What do I do? And then he says in the text, saying these things, I went to sleep. Right? That's how you do it. That's exactly what you do. Whatever you're working on, You say those things over and over in your head as you fall asleep. You pose it as a question, and then you just go to sleep. (laughs) And then you remember your dream. And if you don't remember dreams, well, the way to start remembering dreams is to intend as you're falling asleep to remember the dream. And then when you wake up in the morning, try not to move. If there's an image or something tentative of a dream, go with it. Write it down. Keep a notebook. And then the whole thing will come. And this is a practice of within a week or two, you should be remembering your dreams on a regular basis if by doing this. It's just intent. Mm -hmm. And so if you have something you're working on, pose it as a problem. Go to sleep. Wake up. What was your dream? Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes there are surprising answers. I give a couple of examples in the book of it. And it's really kind of surprising when you think about it. It's like, what we have inside this skull, you know? Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. Is it inside the skull? Because it seems like the dream world, I think in one part you call it the lunar realm, and it seems like it is a place, a place that is non-physical that maybe you can encounter spirits in. It's just odd. Clearly the mechanism works if you are using that like alarm example you gave. It's like the person is focusing on a problem when they need to get up and it's the last thing they think about and the mechanism just naturally helps them out a little bit. So yeah, you can you can massage that into whatever problem or important thing you want. But exactly. where does the knowledge come from? Is it truly in the head or are we extracting knowledge from another realm? You are extracting knowledge from another realm called the library, your laboratory, other people you're speaking to, other texts you have studied and memorized. 
this is the input. And then also just your day-to-day experience in the world, conscious, unconscious, whatever feeds in, this thing in the head, right, is constantly pattern-seeking and creating, right? This is how we get through the world. If we didn't do that, you wouldn't make it out the door, right? (laughs) But this is it. It's like, where is that input coming from? If you look at the examples out of the sciences, right, they come from people who have put the one example I give in the book is Dr. Hilpricht from Penn U, University of Pennsylvania, early Assyriologist from the 1890s, early teens. He was working on decoding or deciphering what he thought was a ring, right? And just couldn't work it. Some piece was missing and things like this. And this had obsessed him for many years. But this is something this guy's studying worldwide right? Looking at, he's one of the major excavators in Iraq at the time, discovered many things, but yet he couldn't figure this out. So one day he's been working, he has a dream. He goes to sleep and he has a dream. And this priest appears in his dream and shows him, he goes, I am the priest of Bell, the god Bell. And this is the votive cylinder. And he wakes up and he goes, that's what it is. It's not a ring. It's a votive cylinder. And then he remembers that in this one text, there's a sketch of it that some other archaeologist had done. There's another piece from some other. And he didn't remember this, but it all came together. As he was telling one of his colleagues about this, his colleague goes, well, of course, don't you remember we were in Berlin last year and we were looking at these examples? You saw that there. You have this book right over here. Look, open up the page. Here's that image. These images have been in his head for like decades, but it wasn't until the last final trying to piece it together that the brain kind of started pulling these things up and then he put it together and clothed it in. There was no priest that appeared to him, right? Right, right. He created this in his own dream world to convey the information. If he did not do this practice, if he did not study... It's not like you and I are going to look at a piece of archaeological evidence, go to sleep that night thinking, I want to know what it is, and then all of a sudden you'll wake up and know. That's not quite how it works. If you read the literature around it or the experiences, these folks have been dedicated to this problem for years. It's like what Pasteur said, it's chance favors the prepared mind. Yes, but it it seems like if you, say, are struggling to find your true path in life, your true will, you could really reflect on what am I here to do? What am I meant to bring forth in the world? What is my story? What is my path? And you could think about that enough. And yeah, you will get answers. You will get answers. And I can say, in my very, very early years, this is what happened. I had a very clear and very strange dream. It's really funny. I was on this like oh near the sea beautiful spring day grassy kind of thing before the ocean and there were these little pavilion tents right just all around just like this really lovely celebratory something going on i don't know what and as i'm walking this man comes over and he goes oh that one's for you and i was like he goes basically it was like that's a problem for you to solve go take a look So I went in and I opened up the tent, you know, the pavilion kind of tent thing and suspended in the air and slowly spinning was this crystal. But what it was, 
it was, it's hard to explain it. It was both based on the crystal structure of a number five and a crystal structure of the number six, right? Okay. And I'm the, the dream, I'm like 14 at this time, right? <laughs> and what the voice, the guy was saying, he goes, yeah, that's your problem. Unify them. And it's like, okay, how do you unify five and six? And it's like, and that, I tell you, you start reading, these two numbers start coming up for a lot of reasons. And you will. I mean, it's like, okay, I never really understood what that meant until maybe 30, 40 years later as I'm working on some things. And it really turned into how do you resolve graphically a unification of five and six? It has to do with some geometric design elements. And it's there. But when I came up, the dream came back from like 40 years ago. And it was like, holy shit, that's right. And then I started looking back at other things as I began to understand like, you know, some of the more Pythagorean ideas of numbers and stuff like that, that, oh no, all right, something was cooking in my head. And then you'll close it with some character from your life that will play that role. What I mean by that is someone like this in a dream might show up as a tour guide. And it may be a tour guide that you may have met at the museum you go to occasionally, and there's the same guy always there. And as you go in, they'll go, oh yeah, not that way, this way. And this is where you go, okay, is that Hermes? <laughs> right? Yeah. You can start finding these resonances of what role the character plays within whatever mythic symbolic system you're working within. And that's another way to engage it and bring it to life. Very interesting. Very interesting. And on the subject of geometry, of course, as we mentioned, most conversations about introductory techniques involving meditation would be counting the breath cycles. And we've heard that before, but you have this next step in the book of meditating on geometry, saying that once you really start to grasp it, this is the new ground from which great invention and insights arise. Through this, the inner eye is awakened, exercised, and strengthened, enabling it to be used in all aspects of life and the work. With this practice, the inner eye is purified. Problems and questions are easily seen and solved, allowing for more complex problems to come forward. And so the ascent begins. This is why geometry was so valuable in early philosophical practice for purifying the inner eye. Well, I like that. It seems like no small thing. Yeah, it is no small thing. They don't really quite teach this in high school. Right. And I think they should, because if they did, I think they'd have some very interesting students continuing on with geometry. What I mean by this and how it was actually used, here's the thing with geometrical objects. They're not real. A real triangle doesn't exist, except it does as an abstract idea. At the same time, it's very concrete. Right. If I say equilateral triangle and you know what those words mean, there's only one image that will come up in everybody's head worldwide. Right. It may vary in size, what have you. So geometry shares a lot with qualities of the dream world where it is kind of real, but not follows its own rules. So by practicing geometry, literally on the outside, understanding the rules, solving problems, this is what was done in Greece. They said, before you could study philosophy, you needed to study geometry. 
And that has to do with a certain logical like thinking, you're training the mind to go in order, understand the bigger problem, breaking it down into bits, step by step, all the stuff that you studied and learned in geometry, but they weren't telling you how this could work in your magical practice. Um, but once you do that, right, you know the rules, you know the basic rules of geometry by practicing out on paper, right? Straight edge, compass, and pencil and paper. You're given a problem, you start to work it out. As anyone knows who's played piano, done typewriting, any kind of musical instrument, the more you practice something, the more you can internalize it. And the more you internalize it, the better your practice hopefully gets, right? So this is the thing with in ancient geometry that you would do these things, but then you're given a problem, a simple enough problem, you can do it in your head. I mean, I think we've all had this. You have a certain amount of space. Some people do this better than others, moving objects in space in their head. But it's like you can. You go, will that fit in that? And you go, yeah, that will fit in that. That comes from your experience. But once you move that problem-solving aspect into your own head, it becomes a lot more flexible and fluid. You can do this pretty much anywhere then. And then, again, once you've gotten practice with something, you can start upping the level and challenge of it. Think of music, right? Think of practicing music, learning music, how to read music. At each level, you're moving more and more of it in. So you don't really need to study the chord progressions. You know them. And your hand knows them even better. You know. And then once you're at that level, the dreams start to kick in. Because what you work on a lot starts to show up in dream whether you want it to or not. And this is what I'm saying. That's the point you want to get to. This is the point in philosophy, I believe, that what you've done is you've trained your mind to be able to visualize things. And you're visualizing things that are intangible yet concrete, this in-between world of geometric object. Once you have that, you can start really just, I mean, if you talk to any scientist, mathematician, whatever, a lot of the shit goes on in their heads. <laughs> I mean, Einstein was famous for what he called the Gedanken Experimentum, right? The thought experiments. So he's doing this magical work of understanding the deep structure of the universe, knowing that it's real through experiment and, well, what else could it be? Because this is the logical conclusion of it. But then what he does is, as he says, I put myself on a beam of light to see what would happen. So he knows in his head what the equations are, but now he brings it to life in this vision. And from there, we end up with relativity theory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's no small thing. <laughs> right, right. I've seen this principle at work in some YouTube videos where they will take a really accomplished master drummer and they will play him a song that he's never heard from some obscure genre and it will have the drum track taken out of it. And he'll listen to it one time. He'll have a pen and paper. He'll hold up what he did. And it's just a bunch of hash marks, but to him, it's a, a language or it's a, a framework, a crutch based on most of it being internal, as you're saying, and then they'll play it again. And he'll play oftentimes a pretty perfect rendition of the drum track for any song because he knows the formulas of music and he only needed a few hash marks on a paper to keep him on track. And it's a really impressive thing to see. Yeah. And that is the, that's what I'm saying. We've got this amazing thing upstairs. 
Yeah, we don't use it enough. No, no. I mean, we don't challenge ourselves enough to use it because to outsource it, either to writing notes down on a piece of paper or whatever kind of digital computer stuff is, it kind of weakens that ability, our inner ability. I mean, this is actually one of the ironic or I think funny things is, I think it was Socrates and Plato, right? Socrates was like totally against books. You do not write shit down, right? Uh, because that will destroy the mind, right? Yeah. And what he says is, and you can apply this to the iPhone, you can apply this to the internet. It gives the illusion of omniscience while generally knowing nothing. Yes. Oh, that's so well said. Because I remember phone numbers from my childhood. Yes. But I struggle to remember my wife's number because she's just in my phone under wife. And this is, <laughs> this is the problem. We yeah. ran into this in 9-11 when the towers came down and all the communications in New York City went down. People were trying to reach other folks, but they couldn't remember their numbers. Yeah. That was like a wake-up call for a lot <laughs> of folks. I mean, I always insist upon with my younger friends and things like this, do you have your emergency numbers memorized? They're like, what the fuck are you about? I have it on my phone. It's like, yeah, when your phone goes down, when the next coronal mass ejection happens and the whole satellite system goes down, what are you going to do? Right. If you have it in your head, any phone will work. If you only have it in your phone, then you need that specific one. And then if you know the letter to number combination, you'll never get lost. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's another foundational concept that you talk about in the book. You write a lot about the archetypal process of descending to ascend. It's in a lot of the great works. It's somewhat familiar to the hero's journey, I guess. Dante's Divine Comedy comes to mind, but why is this process or narrative structure so powerful, do you think? Because I think it's actually what we do. I mean, it's like, here you are, right? You come into this world, you're kind of like, what the hell is going on here? You look around at the adults, they're all messed up. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you start figuring things out, you realize, oh, they're messed up. But there is this constant thing of what is going on here. And the way we understand what's going on here is literally just what I had said. Well, what is that? Did you take a stick and you poke it? It's this idea of opening. It's this idea of we're in the world and to understand the world, you engage it, but you engage it by I don't know, somehow opening it up. And what does that mean? I, you know, many, many, many things, many, many different ways. So I do think it has a direct experience from ourselves. I also think it relates to our direct experience of the dream experience of going into a sleep state, which feels as if you're falling asleep. So here you have this idea of a very visceral sense of a descent. And then what happens? Well, then a whole nother world opens up where anything can happen. And how they used to think of it was, is that, well, as the body shuts down, its hold on the soul is loosened. And so the soul now is free to move about. And so it kind of travels around in these other areas and things is one view of it. And so I think it comes from this direct experience. And then if you start to try to induce it through either kind of shamanistic type of activities, drumming, chanting, uh, drugs, what have you, and then externally you're watching somebody kind of fall down, go into an unconscious state, and then come back and say, guess where I was? I actually do think that alchemy is just a glorified shamanism. 
right? If you want to think of it that way, right? Is this way of descending into the world. Physics is a glorified shamanism, descending into the world to understand the deep structures of the universe. So that's where I think it comes from. And then we try to express it as best we can in various mediums. You know, Dante takes the poetry and the structure of a you know, Judeo-Christian universe and goes for it. Yes. And where this descent to ascent process meets art is, according to the book, one example would be Byzantine Orthodox Christian iconography. The Correct writing of icons, the writing of a narrative in an image. And you say that not only are the symbolic representations rooted in the image, but the icon is in of itself a material representation of the spiritual ascent. The icon in its construction has many layers of pigment. It is, in fact, a pyramid built up from dark to light. It begins with the use of earth tones on the base layers and builds layer upon layer and with each subsequent layer, the pigments used are more and more refined, ending with gemstones like malachite, azurite, and lapis luli as the final layer. Each layer is an articulation of light rising out of the dark chaos. And I like that. In a world of digital everything, it's fun to hear about art that not only tries to depict the divine in its imagery, but is also structured with real earth elements layered in a physical process of ascension too. And each one of those things has its own symbolic meaning also. So when those pigments are prepared, each color you're working with is actually a mix of three, right? So you're using greens, you will use an earth green, you'll find kind of like a rarer, more beautiful form of green, and then you'll use a little pinch of malachite in it so that even in the base layers, it's saying that the body is made of three, body, soul, and spirit, right? This is a very Christian idea. It goes deeper, but that's what's being used here. But again, if you go and you look at artists who are working on an esoteric or have that kind of a framework, and you start scratching the surface, you'll start to hear from them that the materials they work with also have some kind of a symbolic kind of quality that speaks to them. I use the iconography as an example simply because it's actually one of the clearest parallels to alchemy and it's a living tradition. So I was actually studying at an iconography studio here in New York City. It was in the basement of an Orthodox cathedral and they had a studio there where they made icons. So you could go, it was like an open studio kind of a thing, and learn how to create the icon. And from there you get the theory. And a lot of it is, it's an oral tradition, not like it's secret. It's just like as someone said, who cares, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who's going to publish the book? No one cares, right? <laughs> so you'll get this. It's like, oh, this isn't written anywhere. Oh, is it secret? Well, not really. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> no yeah. one really cares. That's what the problem is. Because <laughs> I would say this, it's like, oh, it's an oral tradition. And it's a really interesting one. And people go, wow, oh, is it secret? It's like, well, yeah, I guess. Well, that's what I was saying about small markets for some of my favorite things. This is interesting. And last time we touched briefly on a zine of yours called On the Animation of Statues. And I'm pretty intrigued by this old practice of building a statue and calling down a god or spirit to embody it in order to communicate more clearly. Talk to us about this practice and 
how it's been used before. Is it a totally dead practice? And what qualities of a statue or piece of art would increase its insolability? Okay, really good. And this is exactly where the study of Byzantine iconography will kind of answer most of those questions. Seriously, because this is what they talk about. Let me just back up a bit. Because if you look at Byzantine Orthodox Christianity, the practices that are there come out of the Neoplatonic practices of theurgy. There is a Saint Dionysus, 600, 500, this era, what have you, who wrote on celestial hierarchy, mystical theology, these sorts of things. And in his writing, when he talks about this work, he actually uses in the original language the word theurgy. Now, theurgy is a Neoplatonic term implying God work is what it means, right? You're working with the gods. And so when you're doing an icon, you're actually following the animation of statue practice. This is what the animation of the statues was about. You would bring the elements together, materials together that are associated with that particular deity. You would then construct a statue out of it, wax and other little things, right? Incense, music, all that stuff. And as I think it was the Amblichus or one of the other ones put it like, yes, you bring it all together so that everything is there, but it's missing the soul of the God. So it's like sulfur awaiting the flame is the way it's put, right? In other words, everything is ready, but you just need that little ignition. And that's where the practitioner comes in. Now, the kicker is, this comes out of a lot of the writings of Iamblichus. And if people aren't familiar with On the Mysteries by Iamblichus, it's a very early Neoplatonic writing that is the source, I would say, of 90% of all Western esoteric practice. So if you're wanting to read some original material, dig into that one. What he says, after he goes through all this kind of polemic for these mystical practices, concrete practices, arguing that the mind needs a prop. At the end, he goes, well, of course, you know, it's not the gods who descend to us. It's us that go to them. And so then you start to think about this. Okay, so what is he talking about? Well, he's actually talking about making a prop that you can then visualize and there are these times where it's like, oh, and the statue spoke to me, right? I called the spirit of the God into it and they spoke. You find these examples throughout Byzantine Christianity. I forget who the queen was, but had a particular statue or image of the Virgin Mary that would weep, that would do all these things, right? Because the spirit was brought into it. So there are those stories. But more importantly, and this gets back to that geometry thing again, one of the more interesting works on the animation of statues is in a work by this other Neoplatonic philosopher, Proclus. And get ready for the title. It's his commentary on the first books of Euclid, right? So this is really geometry. He's taken like the first six, seven, eight books of Euclid. He's teaching how to do it, right? How to do these proofs, where this is, what the theories of geometry is. And then he gets partway in and he goes, well, you know, this is all about building that statue. And you go, what? Well, the inner statue with all the proper proportions, right? And then you go, that's what they're talking about. 
So you have this inner practice that's being revealed in these obscure texts, and then you have this outer practice that is like, yeah, making statues out of wax and lizards and all these other things that are associated with it. And you find this work in like the Greek magical papyri, these very external kind of odd practices, make my competitor's breath smell like a goat so I can get her back kind of a thing. Have you ever read any of these? They're hilarious. It's like, they're the practices, but what they're used for. It's like, oh yes, let me call the divine Hikate down. I will call her down. And could you make this guy go away? Because he's really annoying me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you're calling down these deities? And this is what the Amblicus is like, no, 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 no. That's like the street magic aspect of the inner work, which reveals a lot about the inner work. But you get to the statue thing and read Proclus, read them all. You'll start to see what they're talking about. Fair enough. Well, this is a weird question that kind of just speaks Weren't to Weren't they all? Yeah, well, this one might kick it up to 11. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just given where everything is right now and people overemphasizing and obsessing about AI art, could you see a scenario where you could program all the perfect proportions and all the right qualities into an AI, into a 3D printer, let's say, and have it produce a statue that is so prepped for insoling that mm -hmm. it just happens effortlessly and any random Joe can hear the voice from the statue. Like the signal is so strong because it was built to, uh, extreme perfection? Or is that still going to be empty because the practitioner is an aspect of what's going on there? If you took the person out of it, could a machine insole a statue using the same qualities or is it fundamentally a human thing? Well, by definition, from the old practice, it's a human thing because it's not like putting these two bits together I mean, there are certain types of matter that you put next to each other and strange things start to happen, you know, like uranium piles, <laughs> types of things like this that can start reactions. But aside from that, it's a really interesting question. I would say strictly no, because it would need the human operator. If you're doing what this other thing, what in the past they were engaged with, because it involves, a, it's all about what's going on inside you. It has nothing to do with, I mean, it does, but it's more about the inner ascent. It's more about the perfection of the self, the soul, however you want to put it. The other one implies that there is a actual material level of being of these deities that is outside of anything human. Whether we're here or not, it doesn't matter. If you put the right elements together, they will show up. But I think if in that situation they show up and ain't nobody there, I think they get kind of pissed. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, just like calling them down for mundane purposes. I've heard that that's a taboo because sometimes the gods will smack you for bothering them over uh, something so stupid. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like you read the Greek magical papyri. It's filled with this. And it's hilarious that like really long ritual type of stuff for like, I mean, really like make that person's breath smell bad. <laughs> so that they no longer love them. 
you know? Well, they didn't have Netflix and all the distractions. Well, that's, that's exactly day. it. So there you go. <laughs> but I think the interesting question is, it's like, okay, if artificial intelligence actually becomes an intelligence, I don't know. Would it? I'm of the opinion that it can't because it's just going to be a complex calculator in most cases. Well, that's kind of what it is now, right? Right. As I, from my understanding, it scrapes all human content, recombines it in very interesting and in perhaps insightful ways. I mean, there are some things that are going on in terms of image analysis. And by that, I mean medical. I have a friend and someone else who works in a major hospital here. And what they're getting excited about is they have all this stored data, images, x-rays, CT scans, all this stuff with different diseases. What they're hoping to do is run that through some kind of an AI to analyze the images to see if there's some other little things in there that we don't know about, we haven't seen in analyzing that is associated with the disease, right? So that all of a sudden now you have a more highly accurate analysis of what's going on inside. So there are things like that that are, I mean, really quite remarkable. But again, it's still kind of going from what we're putting in. Right. And going back to the insoling statue example, I tended to think about that as like a creation of a portal, so to speak, for a spirit to express itself in our realm. So I could see a machine building a perfect portal if it's programmed in a certain way for those divine proportions. But if it, you know, you seem to emphasize that it is the practitioner and it's really just the statue is a, is a physical representation of a process that's more important, that's internal to that exactly. person. And that's where we would just have avoid. We wouldn't have that aspect. So it would be interesting to try because if it worked, we might have to rethink the mechanisms of what's going on there, but we wouldn't really know until we tried it and it either worked or didn't work. Right. And I don't think it would. I mean, I mean you know, go ahead, let's build one. You know what I mean? Let's make let's one gamble. and see what, <laughs> let's see what happens. Yeah. I got a hundred bucks. I won't be talking to Hecate yeah, right. this time next year. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you could do that anyway. Oh, wow. Touche. You could do that anyway without any machine. Yes. <laughs> you know yes. I mean? That's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like, you know, how much are you projecting into? I mean, that's the other bit in a prop kind of a situation. Part of it is there is an investment in, you know. Mm. Well, <laughs> I love it, man. Another wild ride through the principles and applications of alchemy beyond just the realm of physical transmutation. Before I cut you loose, are there any plans we should tell people about for your next big thing, perhaps? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm working on the next zine. And this is something if people aren't familiar with, I think they should be. I do a whole zine series. And these are available through, if you go online, you can find it, Printed Matter, my own website I sell through Kepri Press. But these are things that take up a particular issue or a particular concept and lay out all the key ideas around it and bibliography, they're more questions. I have some ideas I place in there, but they're more like, hey folks, I'm never gonna write a book on this. I don't have the time. 
But if anybody wants to go ahead and start doing deeper research on the golem, on the homunculus, on dream, on time, I have zines on each one of these that provide that kind of a trail map, as it were, if you wanted to go explore and map out the territory. So that's what I do. The next one is on, I'm working on, as I mentioned, it's on memory, architecture, and initiation. And this one I'm really excited about. The bigger project, and I'm going to be sending out an announcement about this for folks who might be interested in it, is an audio piece, is a constructed soundscape audio thing. It's called Him to Hikate. And it stems out of the work I did with the zine on animation of statues. The one on music, alchemy and music, builds on that. There's another zine I have called A Prelude to a Hymn to Hikate, which is more the graphic novel aspect of it that gives a narrative through the in-between, guided by Hikate, quoting from the Chaldean oracles. It's a very cool piece. And so what's coming out of that is an audio piece with a second scene. And I'm hoping to do a flexi disc that gets stuck in the back so people can do this. If folks are interested, I have a mailing list, which you can sign up through keprepress.com. And I only send out announcements for talks and work I do or new books coming out or zines coming out. You will never hear from me about anything else except this work. And then I have... I always think I'm not going to be doing another book. And I even say that at the beginning of this one. And then I end it with, well, you know, don't count on it. Yeah, I have like a couple of other things that are percolating in my head. But the biggest one coming up is the music piece, is the audio piece. I don't want to call it music. I mean, it's music, but I'm not a musician. And I have respect for musicians who actually do music, not somebody who edits and puts it all together. Yeah. Right. Musician can be a pretty loose term in the digital age. Well, very cool. You have a lot of irons in the fire and Kepri Press is where people can get a handle on most of them. But I had a good time. Lots of things to think about. These are concepts that don't get discussed as much as maybe they should, especially in the modern world. So I appreciate you sharing insights from decades worth of your own exploration and keep up the great work. Take care out there, man. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. Really love it. All right, fun stuff. A little foray into art as an alchemical act and the sad state of art and entertainment today. Lots of stuff that got me thinking, and I thought it was a good point that I made in the intro. If you've read Fahrenheit 451 or seen Equilibrium with Christian Bale, it is an element of the dystopian genre to destroy art, paintings, books, all of it. Even V for Vendetta has a little bit of that. And it's because these things can shake you from baseline consciousness. They can trigger inspiration or emotion. I thought a lot of that was hokey when I was younger, but there is truth in it. And I do think that inspirational art is harder to find today. It's all corporately captured. And I think it speaks to the general state of mass consciousness as well. But even that Oliver Anthony guy, if I were to ask you for an example of a song that supposedly moved a bunch of people and actually criticized power, I'm sure that would be the one that came to mind. When I first saw it, even I was a little jazzed up and thinking, finally, it's been so long. 
Nothing seems to move anybody anymore. But even that was all engineered. I saw something the other day that pointed out that the first person to actually share his song was a prominent digital marketer who said right in his profile he can take anyone viral to a million views and all that. Then all the Daily Wire guys shared it, and boom, he ends up on JRE, the biggest podcast in the world. So sadly, nothing really seems to be organically viral anymore, if it ever was. And I don't really care about viral or popular because my music and entertainment preferences have always been more of the stuff that you need to seek out. But even having trained myself to do that seeking out of new stuff, it's still harder to find anything that actually gets me excited or inspired. Chris Knowles is right. Hollywood and all the rest of it is imploding. And I guess podcasts are well positioned to take advantage of that. Yay. But people just sitting there talking to each other can only take us so far. I'm so desperate for entertainment. I'm watching One Piece, the live action. And even that's just okay. Uh, but check out more of Brian's work. Let him know you enjoyed this interview. As always, there's a second hour for Plus members. We've added a lot of interesting elements to the conversation, but it's up to you if you want to get into that or not. Become a Plus member. The link is right there at the top of your show notes. Seven-day free trial to start it off. Huge archive to enjoy. And there will probably be a decent gap before the next episode. My wife is a few days into labor at this point. I guess she has prodermal labors. They say if you had one the first time, you're likely to have one again. But it really just means prolonged labor. It's rough, but baby number two is coming soon, hopefully here at home. But I want to be able to fully dedicate my time and mind to taking care of her, watching the older one, and just being present in this whole thing, because we aren't doing it again. And last time was not exactly the experience we had in mind. So expect a gap. If you see people posting in comments or social media about why no new show, help me out and just remind them that I'm taking a little paternity leave for maybe. 10 days or so, but I've got new episodes in the pipeline. I'm well prepared and I will get them out to you when I can, but let's hit up that meetup calendar and then I got to go. All right. September 14th, Flame International Restaurant in LA, September 16th, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, September 22nd, Alamosa, Colorado, September 24th, Ventura, California. September 29th, Oakland, California, and September 30th, Columbia, Missouri. That is what we have on the calendar for September. Feel free to add more. It's all community-driven and free. I just want you guys to have a strong network if we need it. But thanks for listening. Big thanks again to Brian for taking the time, and I'll see you before too long. I've done my part. Your move, inspiration suppressors, corporate money grab movie makers, and enemies of the alchemical process. Your fucking move. Coward, it's your show now. So what's it gonna be? Cause people will tune in to hear another new conspiracy. Almost too much of. We thought this was low. It's bad, getting worse, so. 
Where'd all the good people go? They're on the higher side chats Cause it's everybody's favorite show Where'd all the good people go? He got your Mars golden white And then there's Crow They talk this and that on the higher side chat testing one two now what you gonna do bad news misuse got too much to lose give me some truth now whose side we on whatever you say turn on the boob tube i'm in the mood to obey so lead me astray by the way now where'd all the good people go they locked them up it seems for protesting monsanto people go they're on the THC my favorite show sitting down new episode to hear wanna light a bolt but I fear the police can you hear me can't interrupt me from this friendly conversation for THC With the car wood There's no hesitation Exposing the truth Getting to the elite Scams, schemes, conspiracies And treason It's an excellent show What I need to know Is where'd all the good people go Getting hate and fear from all the other hoes Where'd all the good people go? Guess that makes THC my favorite show Where'd all the good they people go? They talk this and that on the higher side chat Testing one, two, now what you gonna do? Bad news, misuse, got, give me some truth You got too much to lose Whose side are we on today anyway? Okay, whatever you say, wrong and resolute, but in the mood to obey. Station to station, desensitizing the nation, going 